0: my OCD family community. Autism Acceptance Month is in full swing, and I have been loving seeing all the resources popping up and around social media. And today, we're going to rejoin with our brother from a different mother, Dr. Jeremy Schumann, because today we're tackling a biggie. We're going to be talking about Applied Behavioral Analysis, that's ABA, and we're going to be talking about CBT, Cognitive Behavioral Therapy. And the question is this, is it harmful or helpful when treating our autistic family? Does it provide support for needs or does it strip people of their agency? It's a big and very important topic. So take a seat fam, because we've got some talking to do. I'm Nicole Morris, licensed marriage and family therapist and mental health correspondent. And let me be the first to say, welcome to the family. The OCD family that is, I am here to create a community of support for family members, spouses, partners, parents, adult children as there may be adult words, and chosen family of OCD sufferers and their community. I've had over 22 years of experience in the mental health field, but please note that this information does not qualify or substitute as a diagnostic evaluation, therapy, or treatment, and it is presented on an as-is basis. Please follow up with a qualified mental health provider in your area regarding concerns for yourself or loved ones. Thank you for joining us today. Now, let's get started. Okay, funny quick story here. When my middle kiddo was learning how to talk, he was communicating in other ways. And I like to acknowledge that not all communication is verbal communication. There's no shame. Whether you use an AAC device, that's an augmentative and alternative communication device, often in the form of a tablet or whether you use signing, whether you use gestures, utterances, communication is communication. But for the sake of the story, in terms of verbal communication, I I will never forget when he started to say hello, I would like walk into his room, he'd pop up and he would go hello. Like, definitely giving me the the Jerry Seinfeld vibes, if you ever watched Seinfeld. In fact, I'll probably find a YouTube clip, put it on the blog post for today, just for a little fun. Hello! It was just, it was the best. Because y'all, no matter what was going on in life, you really couldn't help but to smile at it. Additionally... He worked so hard for it, and he was so proud of himself, but then it was this just ooey, gooey, delicious little hello that was so cute. So I just wanted to extend a big hello to you, OCD family community, as we meet again and pick up on our discussion where we're looking at autism and OCD. All right, so today is a big, important topic. And first off, I just want to acknowledge all of the folks coming to our family table for this discussion. If you're new here, welcome. So glad that you are tuning in for our return fam. Hey, hope you had a good week and welcome back. So today we're talking about ABA and CBT. And I just wanted to acknowledge, I'm sure we have some hardcore ABA folks here, even some ABA service providers tuning in. We also are going to, I'm sure, have some hardcore anti-ABA folks. And the same goes for CBT. So we're going to have folks that are big fans of CBT. We're going to have folks that are very against CBT. We're going to have parents here. I mean, this is the OCD family community. At the very least, Jeremy and I are parents. So, you know, we're, we're here. But I know y'all are here too. And last but not least, we have folks with lived experience here. You're autistic. Maybe you've done ABA or CBT or both. Maybe you've done neither. Maybe you've done every combination possible in between. And y'all, when we have lived experience, that is going to profoundly, profoundly shape how we see, experience, and understand the world. So we have a diverse group that's coming into this conversation, and our discussions are even better when you're a part of them. Your voice matters. So let's welcome back my friend and colleague, Dr. Jeremy Schumann, a clinical psychologist specializing in the treatment of OCD and anxiety disorders. He is a practitioner, clinical director, supervisor, and professional consultant, and he was with us last week for part one of the series where we addressed the importance of neurodiversity-affirming therapies and understanding the heterogeneity of autistic phenomenology. So if I just said a bunch of words where you're like, what? I'm going to suggest if you didn't hear last week's episode, part one, pause here, give part one a listen. It will really help explain that further. And that foundation is going to be really quite helpful. But then come back because I want you to hear this part, too, because we're talking about ABA and it's considered a medically necessary treatment for people with autism per the medical model. And ABA is a therapy that can happen in home, at school, out in the community. There are ABA treatment centers. So we're going to be discussing ABA a bit. And there are a lot of big feelings out there about ABA. I can include myself. I have big feelings about ABA. And on the flip side of the coin, we're also going to be discussing CBT because under the umbrella of CBT, again, that's cognitive behavioral therapy, we have those evidence-based practices for treating OCD. And frankly, there's a lot of big feelings about CBT, too, particularly when we're considering the cost-benefit analysis of this type of treatment for our autistic brothers and sisters Whether you have OCD or not. How does CBT work for mental health for autistic folks? So, one last thing before we get into this discussion, I made up a little handout. Who doesn't love a good handout? And I posted it over at OCDFamilyPodcast.com. It's under this episode's blog post. So, we're season one, episode 37. And just a helpful hint, fam, you can always find the season and episode numbers in the title of every episode here at OCD Family Podcast, just to make it easier to search and find what you're looking for. If you're not near a computer, you can pull this up on your smartphone. You can create a note within your phone. You can even grab one of those uh, old-fashioned pens and a piece of paper or a marker, whatever is easiest for you. But I'm gonna encourage you to look at this list of terms. And so I have a printout on OCDFamilyPodcast.com at the blog but I'm also going to read through the words in case you're like, nope, gonna go for the uh, pen and paper, sis, and and then that's totally fine. So I'll go through it. But basically what I want you to do here at the beginning of the episode or pre-episode I just want you to look at the different terminology that's listed. Again, I'm gonna go through this in a moment and just decide, is this harmful or is it helpful? Or y'all, is it both or neither? So what you're gonna do is you're just going to do a really quick checklist. Just see what your initial impressions are of these words just at first glance. And then we're gonna also pull it back out at the end of the episode and see if we still think about it in the same way. For most of us, we're probably gonna think about things the same way, right? But for some of us, we might find some shifting just even in the course of our conversation here. So this is really just a helpful tool for us recognizing and reflecting on the language. Is this harmful or helpful? Here are the words. Applied Behavioral Analysis, also referred to as ABA as an acronym. We have a lot of acronyms going on. Cognitive Behavioral Therapy, that's CBT. Autism Spectrum Disorder, ASD, is another way to refer to that. Neurotypical, or NT. Neuroatypical. This one doesn't have a fun little acronym, although some people refer to it as our next word. Neurodivergent, ND. Evidence-based practice, or EBP. Next word is disability. Next word ableism. Next, we have high-functioning autism, also referred to sometimes as HFA. Next, we have highly sensitive person, HSP. And some of these terms you may have not heard of, we haven't discussed yet. Some of these we're going to be discussing next week. Some of these are just terms that sometimes get linked or associated more with autistic folks, but also exist and co-occur within a myriad of neurotypes. Next, we have Asperger's syndrome or Aspie. Next, person with autism. Person first language, that's person with autism. Next word is autistic. And then, allistic. Okay, so those are the words I just want you to put down your initial impressions as this language, the different terminology, harmful or helpful, both or neither. And again, if if you're not familiar with some of those terms, that's okay. Just what's your initial impression? We'll have an opportunity to discuss a lot of these today, next week, and so on. So after you have that completed or filled out, won't you join us? Because now it's time to get down to business. We are going to be discussing ABA and CBT. And I think this discussion may surprise you. It even surprised Jeremy and me. So let's get to it. Welcome back.
1: Hello. All right. I'm ready.
0: Okay. Thank you for the extra time and the conversation. We wanted to highlight ABA therapy and ABA therapy is another form of therapy where if a kid is getting a diagnosis of autism, often at very early ages, the medical division with the psychologist that is evaluating is going to recommend ABA therapy. And there are places all over and and many communities offering ABA therapy. I know you and I emailed back and forth quite a bit about ABA. And ABA therapy is not consistent across the board. And while you can have these different level of outcome goals, the message getting communicated can feel very similar to taking away your agency. You're not good enough just the way you are. And there are extreme presentations where if ABA is going to keep a person safer than their natural environment that doesn't know how to handle their stressors, that might be helpful, but it can also lead to this coercive experience for autistic folks.
1: Mm -hmm. So let me jump in there. ABA is such a fraught topic and I don't want to take too broad of a stance. I will take a broad enough stance to say in general, I tend to be against ABA in any form that it's presented to me because of its history. Now, in specific, if someone comes to me and says, I do ABA, I can have a conversation with that person without jumping down their throat. And I could and I find probably a lot of common ground. But ABA is based off of, this is decades ago, ABA is based off of a, a presupposition that autistic people are less than human and that we are making them human through these corrective practices, if you if you can mimic a neurotypical person, then you will feel more human, be more human. And it's like literal language about not having a soul in there. I, it, but that's decades ago, and that's not how people practice today. However, there are still a lot of elements that I disagree with in the way that ABA is intended to be practiced today, such as you don't get access to your regulating stimuli, your special interests, your stims unless you've done the desired behavior. Well, it's telling people to push through all sorts of discomfort, which can make sense for developing grit, but when it's done purely coercively, when I don't get access to my regulating stuff, unless, and when it's all out of my control, my only worth, my only time when I deserve to feel good is when I am placating the adult that has this complaint about me. That is not a healthy message to send people. So especially when you get like 40 hours a week of ABA, you get restriction from regulating things until you've done the desired behavior. The only forms of positive reinforcement that you're getting are when you've done your ABA goals. That feels really icky to me. But to use behaviorism in general, like you're saying that there's sometimes it's about safety. Sometimes it's not just about safety, but it's uh, people who have problems that relate to their own health or well-being like someone who gets manipulated and gets their money taken because they're too trusting maybe they don't identify for themselves that they have a social issue they feel like they want more friends and they're saying this new person in my life is treating me so well well it may be in their benefit to do something coercive and say let we have to point out how this history of manipulating relationships has left you in places where you're financially burdened and you're not okay even though you're coming to me saying i don't want anyone talking to me about this relationship so this brings up this this thing about the camps that we get into. As I explain how lots of autistic adults say that behavioral practices done to them when they were kids did not give them any agency and invalidate them the way you're saying your other guests had invalidation about all their sensory experiences. They are very they're once bitten twice shy. They're traumatized. They're they're afraid to think about behaviorism in general. Behaviorism equals coercion in their mind. But behaviorism is not just coercion. Behaviorism is the science of understanding how our learning goes, how how one stimulus leads to a response and how we can set up conditions that get us the responses that we want more often. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of value to being able to apply behaviorism to yourself with agency Things like exposure therapy are a form of behaviorism. It's not inherently saying, we're restricting you from the things that make you you. If you face your fears, you will learn something from it, and you might feel better after that. And we'll get in reaction to people's experiences with coercive behaviorism as a kid, this all behaviorism is bad mantra. And it really denies folks access to these really life-saving kinds of care ERP is an extremely valuable tool. ABA, I have to imagine the principles behind it would be considered to be completely aversive, but they are, there's so many valuable tools in some of the principles behind ABA about repetition of modeling, et cetera. But where it gets ugly is when it's identity robbing and it's invalidating. So we use this word guard railing saying, You're not capable of that. If you had someone who had a learning disability, so they had dysgraphia and they couldn't write very easily, but all the ideas were up there in their head. And they said, I'm gonna go get a PhD. You'd wanna say, well, there's ways that writing is gonna be difficult for you, but all the ideas are in your head. We're not gonna try to prevent you from going down this route that might be challenging in some ways, but I know you're capable of it. You can overcome these barriers. Same thing with this behaviorism. There might be sensory or things that you're afraid of that you don't want to face. But if the message is you'll never habituate to anything, you won't get better, everything is going to be traumatic, to you. then you're going to miss out on all this really valuable therapy. All you have to do is go read these success stories from ERP, from people who did things like flooding, even that is really an uncomfortable experience to understand what a life-changing intervention that can be, and make sure that autistic folks don't get left out of that and kept away from it because we think less of them. We think that they're incapable. It should always be an informed consent model. It should always be, here are the kinds of outcomes that we might expect if we try various things. As an expert, here's what I think your prognosis might be if you try these various things. What do you want to try? I'm never going to push you past where you want to go unless we get into these situations where it becomes for the good of self or society, we have to come up with a plan. Even then, it's about respecting the client's dignity through that and giving them as much agency as we possibly can.
0: Yeah, absolutely. In my notes, as we started talking about this, I was thinking, you know, the goal is we want to provide agency access, some flexibility so that you can self-advocate. Right. Versus really that habituation and that learned helplessness of no, you can't you can't do that. And I guess I can't. I guess I can't. I guess it's not for people like me. And one of the things that I like to remind this community about is that we are all more alike than different when we look at especially us versus OCD. Right. Flooding for anyone is going to be very, very difficult. If it was easy, then we wouldn't need to do it, probably, (laughs) you know, like, but when we're talking about the treatment, especially of certain mental health disorders, but also medical things, like, there's going to be some really uncomfortable stuff, and it's not easy, but that consent, that's just even the, the basic, most basic fundamental piece of agency you can give a person. And within exposure and response prevention, we always say you get the choice to participate in this or not. You can say, no, I can't do that today, and we can talk about that. We also can look at other options like inference-based CBT, and again, with consent, right?
1: So in the autism world, we see a lot more coercive forms of behaviorism where against the child's will, they're gonna have to do this anyway. In the OCD or anxiety world, we see some forms of it that are quote unquote coercive, like space training. When our kid does not want to go face their fear, but we're going to remove one accommodation at a time, and we see that that could be done very compassionately and restore kids' sense of agency themselves. They, I was afraid to face the dark. I face the dark now. I can face the dark all by myself. I didn't choose to face the dark. I would rather just sleep with the light on, sleep in mom's bed, but through doing this repeatedly, now I get this back. So that's a form of behaviorism that's slightly coercive, but doesn't have all the same amount of negative connotation. Or it can get more coercive than that, though, where we do start to maybe have a negative connotation. Like you can imagine someone is locked in their room with OCD. They're a treatment refuser. They won't go to one of our inpatient places like Rogers. They're starting to wither away and they're sick we're getting to the place where we're gonna have to do something involuntary and pull them out on a stretcher and parents go for a consultation with an ocd specialist who's trying to help them pull back further accommodations and we might get a recommendation like well you're either going to do your erp today someone has a contamination phobia you're either going to come out of your room and you're going to touch the stuff you don't like in the kitchen or we're going to fill up a spray bottle with water that's contaminated from the thing you don't like in the kitchen. And I'm going to walk around your safe space in your room and I'm going to spritz everything. So now you don't have any safe place.
0: That's awful.
1: That is, but well, is that awful or is that the sort of ERP that saved hundreds of lives in our country? Depends who you ask. I have to imagine, again, I'm imagining here rather than having the case study, that there are adults who are like my life was saved because they did that. When I watch Ethan Smith's keynote Mm -hmm. from 2014, ICDF, where he talks about his journey and going to Harvard's program and listen to that, if any listeners haven't already.
0: I'll put a link on the blog post because, yeah, I think this would be worth checking out.
1: I mean, it was so dramatic. He was someone who needed intervention. And then in the end, he ended up choosing it for himself. He had to figure out how to get through his white knuckling of exposures. And it took real acceptance of what was going on in order to do that but his life was saved by getting him to Harvard. Would he have chosen to go there on his own? He might've chosen more and more accommodation because he was so low inside at that point. And maybe Ethan will correct me next time I see him at the conference and tell me that isn't what it was like, but there are, it's not all or nothing with this question of coercive or not. And we can easily guardrail people away from life-saving treatment. And at the same time, all these concerns are valid and we see them in the autism community and we also can see them in the ocd community and it's cool that icbt offers a non-exposure method of treating ocd by directly going after inferential confusion and going after doubt as we've had other guests on the podcast talk about but i don't know that that is enough either hmm. i use i'm someone who, who does i wouldn't say i'm eclectic i i'm, I'm i put these things together. I think anxiety sensitivity Mm -hmm. responds only to exposure. You really don't get over your fear of anxiety until you go and sit with the things that make you anxious. You might learn how to get rid of the scary story that made you doubt your five senses and identity. Mm -hmm. But then if you still don't want to feel the icky feeling that goes along with that, there's nothing better for that than sitting with that feeling. So exposure still to me is very much a part of recovery from anxiety and OCD, depending on what your presentation of anxiety or OCD is. So uh, I see too much tendency sometimes to go towards anti-behavioral stuff without without appreciating what there really is in behaviorism that's very non coercive
0: Yeah, it brings up a really good point. Like in ICBT, If you're going through the obsessional sequence and you're stopping at that inference of doubt, and if you resolve that, you don't get to the anxiety. But when you get to anxiety in life, you're still going to get to anxiety in life. If you don't have a way to tolerate that, then it's going to take you to that extreme fight, flight, or freeze. So even if ICBT resolves the inferential confusion and helps lower OCD, you're still probably going to feel really triggered When you do feel anxious, even when you have a relevant doubt that might bring up some anxiety, unless you've learned to tolerate some of that anxiety and not feel like, oh, shit, we're in trouble now, (laughs) save our ship, then you're going to have a hard time dealing with anxiety. And so you're speaking to that piece of really both being important when we're thinking about something like treatment with OCD, but also just as a life skill. We're going to experience hard stuff that's going to make us mad. It's going to make us feel angry. It's going to make us feel anxious. It's not a crime to feel any of those feelings. And knowing how to be able to tolerate that is definitely very important. But when we look at any person with any neurotype, we're going to have different conditions that impact our ability to function within the midst of that anxiety. And so, again, I think it's really important what you're talking about with agency And even with informed consent, and I guess, you know, in that case study example, they did tell him they were going to put contaminated water in the water bottle. But I still feel like, Mm -hmm. you know, is is stripping away zero safe space going to help save them? Or is it going to also have that coercive effect where, yes, maybe it saves you, but also you have that learned helplessness. So it's kind of, it's a fine line. And it depends on the person because how I interpret that, might be completely different than how he experienced that and how he experienced that then and how he would experience it now even may vary within the person, let alone between people. So I think that's a really good point. Okay, so what do you think so far, fam? It's an interesting conversation, right? It also got me to thinking more broadly about CBT and mental health for our autistic fam. And as I thought about this, I thought, I really need to zoom out even a bit further from where we started this conversation. And lucky for us, I reached out to Jeremy and said, hey, what if we kick this thought around a bit further? And you know what? He was game. So we met up for round two of the CBT conversation, and I'm really glad we did because I think it's really important. What is our expectation of what CBT could do for the autistic community?
2: Yeah, my thoughts with that are that CBT can be many different things. It's this big umbrella and a lot of things fit under it. Mm-hmm. And I think the most generic version of it is basically generic talk therapy. And people have the assumption if a therapist is saying back to them, maybe you should take another look at that. Hmm, I don't see it the way that you do. Maybe there's another perspective you could consider here, but that is CBT. But that is just really a very general counseling skill. Mm-hmm. CBT can get more bushy, maybe is a word I could use, about thinking differently through the use of like thought records and journaling and trying to restructure cognitive distortions and understanding the schemas behind these things. That can be a little bit more in depth, but even that is still like change the way you're thinking about something. Mm-hmm. So for some folks, we get a lot of value out of that, but I think that is particularly threatening to autistic folks who have been told over and over again, no, that is not what's happening. You are just being dramatic about this. And and there's like this educational piece that gets left out where if the autistic person is able to advocate for themselves and have a healthy understanding of what their needs are, what supports they'll need, then the kind of communication back and forth about look at this in a different way would never challenge oh, you're making a big deal out of nothing, would never push an autistic person to say, I can tolerate this forever and make it no one else's problem. So that's at least the cognitive side of it, I think can be misapplied, but the distinction of understanding autism will prevent it from being misapplied. And it's unlike ABA in that the foundations of it were not in that coercive, I'm going to change who you are. Mm -hmm. So... There, I think there's value there, but still, that's a coping strategy. That's not something that changes, is supposed to change who you are.
0: Right. Like, it's important to understand and honor our neurocircuitry and go, okay, so whether I'm autistic, whether I deal with attention deficit, whether it's OCD, that we have to be able to go, yeah, we, we can honor that our neurocircuitry works in this way. I think we can all honor, too, objectively, that there are things that can cause us distress and pain in life. And would it be helpful to have some tools that could lessen some distress, that could decrease some of that pain, that could promote growth in the way that we're understanding the world? And so even beyond just CBT, I think, how do we have conversations where we see things from different perspectives? without coming off as gaslighting the other person, because we have a different way of conceptualizing that. And I do think it's a little bit of a lost art right now. We're very polarized in today's world. And I think we probably have been for a while, but with social media, we can have access to anybody's thought across the world in a second or less. And so how do we have these conversations where we can actually disagree where I'm not trying to manipulate or say that your way of processing the world is invalid. I'm trying to say, hey, let me speak into this friend because this has been a helpful growth area for me. And that's that's a difficulty in this day and age.
2: If you go looking for an echo chamber to affirm everything you already believe, it's so easy to find. So if you're a hardcore cbt and you want to go find a group of people that say, oh, well, sensory defensiveness lowers with repeated exposure. I went to that talk at the conference for OCD last year, Mm -hmm. but there was another talk at the conference that, that was much more common sense about accommodation and like listening to the lived experience of the person with the sensory issue. So it's like, it's not all out there, but you can find the echo chamber that says, Yes, you should push people to do things that is going to make them very uncomfortable and try to make them as normal as possible. And this is CBT. But you can also find an echo chamber on the other side saying, we're fighting so hard to defend people against that sort of coercive type of therapy. Or you could find the echo chamber of people saying, I was harmed by CBT. And I, I believe this. I believe that there are CBT practitioners out there who are using the tools and causing harm. And I want to listen and honor the lived experience of people who have been harmed by those experiences. But if you only listen to one set of perspectives, you're missing out on a tool that is valuable and that valuable tool should not be withheld from people based off of a priori assumptions. People need a chance to access these things and see when they can be curious about it, what it does and how it's working out for them. But the provider's job, because there is a power differential, mm-hmm. is to come in here with open ears mm-hmm. and to really go slow enough and to get consultation and to uh, make sure that they're not dominating this experience and defining it for the person before they're ready to fully explain themselves.
0: Right, because the person you're going in to see that practitioner may be an expert in what they do, but you're an expert in you. And they need to learn about you. So they have these great tools that can be helpful. But if they're not listening to you and embracing you for who you are, that's problematic. And I would say most people, and I think you can find this in any profession, really, most people are going in trying to do a good job with it. Some people don't, right? Some people do that intentionally, some don't. But I think it's a very small percentage. At large, I think most people are trying to benefit their clients. In fact, we have an ethical code that we ascribe to, and I'm sure each different country also has their own ethical code saying we need to do what we're doing for the betterment, for the beneficence of the client, and that's part of our charge in the jobs and the research and all of that that we do. So CBT then, is not, or, or any theoretical model, as, as far as that goes, is not aiming to change your brain. It's not aiming to well, change. Well, okay. can I push back on that one? Yeah, I mean, there's more I would say to that, but yes, go ahead and push back, and we'll keep dialoguing about it.
2: Okay, so I, I already said stuff about the cognitive side, and I could go on all day about that, but we also have to touch on the behavioral side. Yeah. Basically, we're using learning principles and social learning to change people's
0: stimulus response patterns.
2: And what we see is when you do like exposure therapy with folks, there are demonstrable changes in the brain for trauma, for OCD. Like it's not, we can't pinpoint exactly. This is the exact change that's going to happen in your brain. But so this brings us into the behavioral side of things where not only are we trying to cope with things, Mm -hmm. but there is a belief that we benefit from this habituation or desensitization, Mm -hmm. that is changing your brain. That is making things, you're not just coping, but you're resolving. Right. And also we're learning things about fear that really do make the fear resolve and go away. And you can be literally cured of your phobia, right? Right. It's not the same thing as something that's going to stick around neurologically forever. and. There are times when we use these learning tools incorrectly. We don't understand the formulation of why the person is behaving the way they are. Mm -hmm. And we say, okay, we're gonna give you something else to do here that's gonna fulfill the function of what you were getting at with that behavior that was bothering you or bothering other people. And if we if we Mm -hmm. don't understand really what the function was, we might just be asking the person, hide what you are experiencing that the the reinforcement of my praise is better than being comfortable that is really bad that is we want to teach people just to mask yeah but we also don't want to withhold the actual brain changes that can happen but who is the expert well the client is the expert but the therapist comes in from this position of power where we conceptualize the case we suggest a treatment plan we get the client's informed consent. We might provide just a few options, but we come in, you know, with our skill set and we know our approach to it. We want to make sure that we are at least offering clients yeah. the tools that we find to be the most amazing relief for many of our clients. And that line is not divided amongst autistic, allistic, neurodivergent, neurotypical. Mm-hmm. It is not divided that way. It's about what is the process? that's led you towards these behaviors, if we can really understand that well, then CBT is only going to be able to give you extra tools, Mm -hmm. not demand that you take away things that that had an adaptive function.
0: Yeah. And you know what? I absolutely agree with that. And so I realize the wording gets tricky sometimes, right? Because what I am... thinking about what I'm saying it, we're not trying to change the anatomy of your brain. We're not trying to say it's wrong to be autistic. It's wrong to process the world in a different way than what we quote unquote determine a neurotypical way, right? Even though a lot of the standards are defined to follow neurotypical, neuronormative norms, however you want to describe it. And so absolutely, we can change what we learn in the brain and we're constantly doing so. From the moment we are born to the moment where we are now, just think of how many millions and millions of changes we've made in our growth and our understanding and our application. And so certainly the way we apply things, certainly the way we learn things and our ability to learn new things, that's open for continued growth. And it it can get stunted by different things as well. We can even feel like different people, different organizations get in the way and stunt our growth. And I think that's fair, especially when we consider some of the histories of mental health, of medical health, and how folks have experienced value or lack thereof in terms of how they process the world. And so When I say we're not trying to change the brain, I mean, we're not trying to say, if you're autistic, we need to try and make you not autistic. No, that is your brain. And CBT is not going to change autism traits, and we wouldn't expect it to. But the point of the CBT would be to help with anxiety, to help with other mental health areas. We can make changes in how we learn, how we apply, how we cope. And I think because mental health, I think autism is often linked in mental health, but it's also a medical diagnosis and it's confusing for a lot of people. That's where the important issue comes in because I know folks that have gone and had really terrible experiences, whether it was CBT or not. Often, if it's something covered by insurance, some kind of measurable goal needs to be in there. So CBT is a preferred choice for most insurance providers, right? And it's evidence based, but at the same time, being evidence based. And because it can make such a difference in, like you said, phobia being obliterated and not having that fear anymore, reducing anxiety, reducing depressive features, all of these different aspects. It's like, yeah, one thing you said to me in an email we had back and forth was like, if we had somebody that was in a wheelchair, but we wanted them to learn how to walk, we wouldn't be like, let me take your wheelchair, right? It's a tool. It doesn't also mean that we're trying to change the person who's using the tool in a way that is no longer them. No, we're just trying to help, right? And I don't know if I'm saying that clearly, but that's kind of my rub with it.
2: I understand where you're coming from with that. And this question about autism as a deficit versus a disability starts us down that conversation about change autistic brains, except that people might come to us and say, I'm having trouble in this area of my life. And like we talked about the double empathy problem and saying that autistic people can communicate with other autistic people, just not necessarily with neurotypical people, but it's not that simple because there are disabilities as part of autism. Everyone's a little bit different. Yeah, People need support where they're disabled. And so we say, I don't want to change who you are, but I do want to give you All the tools that will help with the supports that you need, that will help improve your quality of life, especially when you're coming to me and you're asking, I want help with this particular issue. And I'm not going to hold any particular tools off the table until you've got a chance to say, hey, this is something that is really innate in me and is never going to change. Or maybe this is a way that my brain has changed over time since birth. It's not just my neurotype. It's a learned thing that I think I could learn. New patterns on top of. Mm-hmm. So, we don't want to change people's brains because they're bad, but people do have disability and they deserve support in ways that might address things that really are difficulties.
0: They need different support needs. And that's true. You know, any woman, at least here in America, that has had a child knows that being pregnant is identified as having a disability, which is kind of an interesting way of thinking of that, right? Because you're like, wow, I'm wow. producing life. The whole human race has come out of this production process, and yet it's a disability. But if we think about it in terms of the language of do we need support, like can I have a baby and be at the 8 o'clock meeting tomorrow? I'm probably going to need to attend to the initial healthcare needs of my child and me plus want to support that bonding, is that a disability? I mean, we can argue the semantics of it, but the reality is I need to have the support of having leave without risk of losing my job because I just gave birth to a child. And there's other ways that we could dissect that. But yeah, if you're going to an event and you need to be able, my father cannot walk very well. He has a wheelchair that sometimes he'll use. Sometimes he won't. He has a cane. But does he need a ramp? Can he do all the stairs? Yeah, he needs to be able to have accessibility with a ramp. Does it make him less than as a person because he needs a ramp? No. And so what we're talking about is, and what I think you're speaking to, correct me if I'm wrong, is really providing those supports so there's accessibility to different needs. And you might decide this thing isn't for me, so I don't care if that support's there or not that's fine. Somebody else might want to access that support and can't without the support being available. And so having those safeguards, and I think they are intended to function as safeguards so more people can have a fair opportunity to access different things, whether it's a physical location in the case of a ramp, whether it's feeling A decrease in this anxiety, which we've already talked about, how high anxiety is for so many people in the autistic community.
2: Well, work being able to go to school to be able to be accessed. And if this tool allows you to access it, then that might be something that you want. But like we talked about how we shouldn't guardrail people away from these effective tools, Mm -hmm. but we also should talk about the flip side of it, which is even if these tools are effective... Sometimes they might resolve something. Other times they're really still effective for coping with something. We don't stop there. I try to bring this liberation lens. And the first half of our conversation today, I'm talking about this is a form of liberation, I guess still, because don't deny people access to important tools, Right. but it's the idea of if, I don't remember who I stole this analogy from, someone in the pandas community. But if you're sitting in an attack, could take a whole lot of psychotherapy to be okay with that. Right. And let's pull the tack out. Let's not do the therapy about it. L. Clark, who's an Australian psychologist I'm good friends with, posted on Facebook this morning a meme she made about someone has just gotten a surgery and they're in a lot of pain. But then they start taking pain pills and they find, oh, I actually feel great. I mean, less pain than before the surgery because these pain pills are amazing. I'm going to go out and be even busier and work even harder. You would tell that person, no, you're covering something up. You need to address what's really going on there. You're going to hurt yourself by covering up that pain with your opiate and, and pushing on.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: In autistics, this sensory environment is too intense. This social environment is too demanding. My energy reserves are completely depleted at the end of every day. My sense of justice is violated and I'm just keeping my mouth shut every day. And, oh, look, people like me. I get invited to more things. I'm getting good feedback at work. mm mm-hmm. If we teach these sort of coping skills and it leads to burnout, Mm -hmm. that's not an acceptable outcome for me either. So Mm -hmm. we teach the coping skills to give people tools that they have to learn to use flexibly. Mm -hmm. And we don't come in with the goal in mind about we'll spend X number of days at work because even though that's a nice CBT goal, a more liberation oriented Mm -hmm. goal would be like, Uses these tools and and tracks the outcomes, including not just how functional was I? What was my distress level? How much time could I spend in things that mattered to me outside of these things? Or was I too burned out or exhausted? How are my important relationships? How is my self-esteem, my sense of identity Mm -hmm. throughout this whole thing? We're not looking at all those pieces. Then coping is not the be-all, end-all outcome. That it doesn't mean we want to restrict people from it. We want people to have all the options and fight for them to be able to advocate for themselves and and use all the tools effectively.
0: Well, and you know something you said there that's really resonating with me. I'm thinking of certain clients, but also just thinking in general that sense of identity. It can be a tricky one, right? Because as you're growing up, and I certainly try to support this in the best way possible for my boys. But what is your sense of identity if you feel like I'm continually getting feedback? No, it's not too loud. No, it's not too cold. It's not too bright. Why are you doing that? Why are you doing this? And I will clarify, it's not me as mom just coming in. There are times as a mom, you're like, kid, what, what are you doing? It has nothing to do with the fact that they're autistic. You're like doing the parent thing, right? But at the same time, it's like that sense of identity can get kind of lost when you're like, well, yeah, where do I fit into this? I don't feel normal. What's wrong with me? Am I weird? And so it just being able to have that sense of identity sometimes is that liberation, right? Going, this is right. who I am. And I don't have to apologize for this because that's who I am.
2: I don't know if anyone has made like the autistic identity model or the neurodivergent identity model, but that would- we're still interested in reading in grad school, talked with some clients still about the black racial identity model by William Cross and then all these spin-offs that have come out of that into other cultures and multicultural identities. I would guess someone probably has made one because there's so many prolific writers in this community, mm-hmm. but really interested to see you, know, what that might look like because often we see first alignment with majority and then this moment of contact where you're, it's like, oh, I've been mistreated and then a pulling away from that and sort of isolating and a rejection of majority and then some sort of integration that happens not for everyone, but for some people at the end of that model. And what happens if you are just spoon fed coping, 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 stay majority culture, stay majority culture. What happens to that arc of identity development that happens from childhood through adolescence, through adulthood? If you've been suppressing so much of your identity over that time. You're not gonna have these beneficial effects of developing a healthy identity in terms of your neurodivergence. And also maybe just feeling disconnected from any sort of authentic self, period. And not not knowing what your likes are, what your interests are, what makes you happy, what makes you upset, being totally out of touch with yeah. with your sense of self.
0: Well, and I think I think it may have been in our ICBT group, because I think I saw you comment on it, but I was reading through a really interesting conversation as well, where, two, there's times in your life where it is normative development to be in this sense of identity seeking as well. And so when is it be crossing the line into we're making a thing into a pathological thing that is actually typical to be like, like am, am I weird? I mean, what teenager? I, I, I was a teenager it is weird. It is weird. Teenagers don't love it if you're like being a teenager is weird. They feel weird about you saying that even, but there are different times. And now you think about even when I was in grad school years ago, it was like now adulthood is even weird because we're kind of like big kids, right? So the merging adulthood was the language used around it. Now that's an identity thing. And then you get into your 30s and you're like, oh, I'm glad I'm not in my 20s. That was a weird phase, right? you got into your 40s and you're like, 30s were good, but now I'm really who I am. So we have that like natural evolution too of our identity changing. And then of course, things happen that present major impacts on our identity development. And so that's without clouding it at all when we're thinking different. Neurotypes, when we think of our LGBTQIA plus community, when we're thinking about so many different aspects of what makes me who I am. And so that is really, really tricky. But I also think that it is another area where if we use the support language, and I think that is really, really valid. Not everyone has had the same ability to wrestle with their identity. And sometimes we need support to provide room to go, okay, Well, it's not that I'm wrong because I don't like this and this is really triggering for me or that I do like this and I have a lot of sensory seeking towards this preferred activity that no one else seems to think is normal here. That's where it's helpful to have some support, not only flexibility for folks that are trying to really figure out their identity, whether you're autistic or not. But also some flexibility for the community going, hey, I don't need to yuck someone else's yum here. Like if, if it works for you, oh well, if it's not the way I process things, we all process things in our own way, whether we share a neurotype or not, right? And so having that flexibility is a really huge thing. But sometimes it can feel oppressive of like, no, you're saying have flexibility, but what you really mean. What this is functioning as is you did that wrong. You need right. to do it right. Right.
2: Only one of us needs to be flexible here. Every time you're supposed to be flexible and I'm inflexible because I'm right and you're wrong.
0: Right. Yeah.
2: And so I like what you're saying about we need to have flexibility on both sides there. And also people need to find their tribes. Yeah. You, know, you need to find people that when you go on that info dump about your special interests, it's not someone saying, well, I really like this person, so I'm going to humor them. I know that this is important to them. And I like seeing them smile. So I'm going to go along with it. I don't really care about the special interest that much, but I care about the person. That's great. Have those relationships too. But also have the person who's like, oh, Pokemon? I love that. Mm-hmm. Oh, you know this esoteric fact that almost no one else in the world knows? Mm-hmm. That's amazing. I, I know enough about Pokemon that that blows my mind. You have to find your tribe and be appreciated for All these strengths that annoy other people too.
0: Yeah. And, and there are, yeah, we all can find people. I mean, I nerd out about OCD, right? I, I, in my free time, I'm like, I'm doing a podcast. We're having
2: email conversations that are like three pages long a piece because we just love talking about
0: it. I Uh, know. I know, Jeremy. And thank you because I'm totally, uh, oh, I had an idea. Oh, and I know somebody that I really trust to be able to speak into this. We could have an interesting conversation. And I'm always, Loving it when people come back. But you know what? Some people are going to be like, that's not my thing. And that speaks again to it doesn't make me wrong or them wrong. It just means we don't connect in the same way on that thing. That's okay. So we can find our tribe where we do connect and we can learn to be like, you don't love that as much, but I'm still going to talk about it. Right? You might engage sometimes and you might not. That's fine. We don't all have to be in that same space. Around those things, the world would be pretty boring, in fact, if we didn't get to dialogue about some of the differences. And so, yeah, I think that even broader, even a broader conversation than CBT is sometimes like, how do I say, well, that's not my experience of it, without a offending you, like you should be thinking about it the way I am. And some people are, like you should. You're wrong if you don't think about it that way. So many things, politics, right? We could just endless lists. But at the same time, then we lose the art of how to have a conversation. And for anybody who is in a relationship, whether you're dating, partners, married, whatnot, right? You know, like if you've got a compromise, that is not a one-way street, right? It's not a, I'll, I'll let you be flexible each time. We're good with that, right? You're going to have to meet them part way, And sometimes you're going to concede like, oh, I didn't want to. But I did have to meet them to resolve this. And so really, that is, that's kind of a microcosm of this broader conversation. Can we have a conversation? Certainly, there are situations where coercion and abuse can come into play, and we're never going to condone that. And so certainly, if you've had an abusive, traumatic experience with therapy, CBT, any relationship in general, we're not going, well, suck it up, buttercup. I think you're misinterpreting that. No, that's wrong. And, and we're with you there. But also, that doesn't mean all CBT, all relationships, and all people are abusive. And so it's a flexibility exercise even in and of itself there to then go, okay, so whether you see it from my point of view or not, or I see it from your point of view or not, and we can, in the end, agree to disagree on it even, we can still have a conversation. Tools can still be helpful. They're not in and of themselves out there to do harm, but to provide support.
2: Let me ask this question that I'm just considering out loud for myself right now. Sure. Our conversation here about CBT and then in general, more just relationships really illustrates that this is a complaint about power dynamic. This is therapists have power dynamic of more choice, more agency in the therapy room because we got more experience in there and we got the role, we got the degree hanging on the wall. Mm And we have the tunity, we have the risk of doing what you're describing or, you know, the marriage where one person always gets their way. Yeah. And is there anything about CBT in particular that leads to those power dynamics? I think in some ways we could say that there are power dynamics across any modality that you might choose because of the degree hanging on the wall and you're paying me and you're, this is what you're here to do. Yeah. But there's. I I think there might be something within CBT that makes it particularly dangerous for people who are not aware of the power dynamic at play there mm-hmm. because learning principles are effective for changing behavior without people's consent and if you use for example internal family systems
0: mm-hmm.
2: you might ask someone to do something that's emotionally mm-hmm. difficult in the session but we're not there's no coercive possibility in the same way as when we set up systems to reinforce and provide consequences to achieve a desired outcome. Or EMDR, there might be difficulty in accessing some difficult memories.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: And, and a therapist could coerce a client to go faster than they're ready and to do something painful in that way. But again, it's not. Throughout your life, all your behavior is going to be governed by the learning principles that we set up. That's what ABA is supposed to be about, right? But In CBT, we still have those same learning principles that are abused in ABA Mm -hmm. and can be abused in ABA Mm -hmm. and they can be abused in CBT. And I think it is a particular risk Mm -hmm. of the intervention for people who are A, not respectful of the power dynamic and B, not respectful of identity and do bad conceptualizations because they don't care to listen to what the person's identity truly is.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, I think that is a really good point. And it probably speaks to, in general, when we have conversations about, for example, stereotypes, you go, well, it's not that the stereotype is the criteria that defines something and you know, identifies something. But Stereotypes develop to be stereotypes over time because there's enough general overlap where we start to go, uh, okay, we can see a profile existing around what would this mean? It might look like this, right? And so I think you're making a really good point because sometimes the rejection of something like CBT, for example, is CBT harmful? Is it a harmful thing? Overall, we like to go, it's not supposed to be harmful. It's not intended for that. But where I'm sure people are feeling that rub and some of the rawness of this is exactly what you're speaking to. And for folks that don't even know, maybe maybe you're autistic and you don't know. You just feel different, right? Maybe your practitioner is autistic and they don't know and they're experiencing things in a different way. then. But sometimes we go into situations often, I would say, not necessarily knowing where we fall identity wise on certain things. And so, if you're going into that and now you're feeling this power differential, you're not necessarily even able to advocate, even if you have the skills to self advocate, because you don't know what you don't know, right? Then that can be tricky. And I think some of the echo chamber that we could find, like you said, you could find any echo chamber around where CBT is harmful, has had these different experiences where they have been in that misappropriation of power or abuse, I want to say hesitantly, because I think a lot of people aren't intending it. I think most people aren't meaning to misapply it.
2: I don't think people mean to misapply it. Maybe CBT is a hammer and it's a really effective tool for hammering in nails and nothing else in the toolbox really does it quite like the hammer does. But also you can smash your finger with the hammer. And there's other tools in this toolbox. There's a feather duster, maybe even, and it's got a particular job and it does really well and it can't smash your finger. But we don't have to be afraid to ever pick up the hammer. We just have to know what its potential is. Mm -hmm. Uh, We're still going to build something.
0: Or if you're going through life trying to put nails in with a feather duster, wouldn't it be nice to have access to the knowledge that at least hammers exist? Whether you decide to go hammer or you go, hey, I'll let all the hammering jobs be done by other folks because that just seems to work for them. It's not working for me. But access to the tool. And then, yeah, it could be scary. And what if I could get hurt? And we deal with a world of what ifs here in the OCD community. And so there is a lot to work through there. And you might have gotten hurt by a hammer. And maybe you go back and you get hurt by a hammer again you're not going to love hammers, and you don't have to love hammers, and you shouldn't be made to love hammers. But if you are a carpenter and you have to use hammers in your work, then you might go, okay, but if I want to keep doing this work, I want to be able to face the hammer even if I don't like it, right? And that's that person's choice. It's, again, it comes down to listening. So not assuming that we're going to try and transform you into liking something you don't. And that becomes or can feel like a gaslighting situation. But if you're coming in and saying, I want to be able to do this thing over here, then also, again, it goes back to that listening piece. Okay, so their goal, the person before me's goal is to want to be able to try and do that. But it's hard because we're scared of the hammer. Yeah, we got some tools that can help with decreasing that distress around the hammer. And then they have the freedom, they have that agency to choose whether they want to pick the hammer up and use it or be like, you know what, there's more jobs than just contract positions here. Maybe I'll do something that's not hammering. So having that choice, ultimately it's unlocking that freedom to have that choice and not saying shame on you, shame on anyone for having the fears or the avoidances or the things on the flip side that do regulate us. I mean, we all have our different things, but having the tools to access, to support, that's really key. And I think that's a really good let point. Go,
2: let me go one level even deeper.
0: Go for it. When
2: talking about CBT, we could sort of apply this to evidence-based practice. This is a e-buzzword. When you're in graduate school, learning to be a therapist, you have to do evidence-based practice. We want the tools that we give our clients to be evidenced to work. They worked for other people. And if I'm making it up off the top of my head, what did I go get training for? Right. Yeah. But a lot of people are in grad school for just a year or two. They maybe have a year of supervision afterwards from someone else who was in grad school for a year or two. Mm -hmm. CBT is, you know, you can learn the quick and dirty version of it without deeply understanding how to conceptualize a neurodiverse population, Mm -hmm. just having a very simplistic definition of anxiety and depression, not seeing a whole person. Mm -hmm. And when we're told, well, if you do thought records and you do deep breathing and you do some behavioral experiments, you've done CBT. And so you come out of grad school with this, I'm in the right. I need to do evidence-based practice because I'm supposed to, yeah, this this value of beneficence and non-malfeasance. I have to do good. I'm going to use what I know. Mm-hmm. And then people come in from the side and say, well, hey, this was harmful to me. Here's another approach. And you plug your ears and go, la, 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 la. That's not evidence-based practice. I don't want to hear it. And then people say, hey, your your practices are harming people. And you say, well, no, I followed the three steps that the person in the research study also did. La, 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 la. I couldn't mm-hmm. possibly be harming people. Mm-hmm. And that name of evidence-based practice can result in cognitive biases for yeah. people who aren't thinking it through i'm not saying do away with the term because it's also very valuable to be yeah. able to understand the evidence base for the interventions that we're trying to select but we have to think critically about the impacts of this heavily favoring the science and because science is just so specific and what mm-hmm. it can say mm-hmm. and then people come in with all these comorbidities and all these extra psychosocial factors that make the outcomes less likely than we might have seen in the study. And if we say that if you're doing evidence-based practice according to the study, then you're in the right, then people will forget to look for all those extra factors. And then right. we get into the the power dynamic misunderstanding or conceptualization thing.
0: Right. and And those studies have to be able to trim those variables down so that they actually know that what they're testing is affecting what they're testing with the tools that they're using. And so you you hear this language or the verbiage of it's a controlled study and there are controlled variables and different treatment groups where we're doing the statistical analysis on the data to make sure that this is causal that this is what has caused this thing. But in life We don't live in a petri dish where we can rule out all these other variables. And often there are so many other variables going on. Also, feedback that I've heard, and I get it, it is valid. Sometimes the people participating in the research, particularly older research, and I think newer research has been very mindful of this and really wanting to represent folks well. But people go, well, who was the research on? Was it on people like me? Was it on a group of privileged research participants that have very different makeups? That doesn't apply to me, right? And so well, we can say, okay, especially as we go back in time, there wasn't the consent or representation in research, and that is still a problem that we are working on improving. But at the same point, because it's an evidence-based practice, we also don't need to just write it off to be like, well, it was probably this one particular group that this works for. Not for me. This has not been for me. Like, how do we broach that in building that trust when, you know, for good reasons, that trust has been broken?
2: I think in having this conversation, I started out wanting to say like a, a yes and that there, there's complaints about CBT yes and here's all the good things about CBT but as we developed it further it's yes and and then no we really have to emphasize the yes part that yeah there are things inherent in CBT that we have to be cautious about to right. be able to get their benefit mm-hmm. that evidence-based practice is it can lead towards cognitive biases in practitioners mm-hmm. and also CBT I've learned a lot lot of tools, nothing changes lives like CBT in my experience that seems to line up with the research. Don't want to hold that back from people and evidence-based practice. Absolutely. I'm, I do a lot of training. I do a lot of supervision. Mm -hmm. Evidence-based practice is what new folks need to learn because they need to learn the tools, but we can't forget about the identity stuff and conceptualization stuff. Can't forget about power differential. And we can't unilaterally say CBT and evidence based practice are good because without considering conceptualization, CBT should consider conceptualization. Evidence based practice should. Yeah. So if, if we can't do that, then then it's fair to say that these are dangerous. I did not expect myself to be saying that here, but this is yes, and is not complete without that admission.
0: Yeah, and you know what? I I think that's a really good point. I think it's really validating for people. I'm sure we're listening from. All different sides of this conversation. And what I would also emphasize with that is yes. So we don't need to just write off the yes because we want to focus on the and. We do really need to emphasize the yes. But yes. And we also really need to emphasize the and because though it can be used dangerously, let's think about this in terms of a car, right? A car is a tool that can get us from place to place. Sometimes, well, most of the time, it's able to function as its purpose, right? It's a vehicle that can get me from here to there. Sometimes it can function as just a, ooh, I'm stressed. It's been a day. I'm going to go for a drive. Maybe that relaxes me. It can be used as a, a bonus tool. I'm not even necessarily trying to go somewhere, but... I'm finding when I'm in this space that I feel better, so I'm going to I'm gonna lean into that. And then sometimes a car can be used as a weapon. It can be used in a dangerous way, even if you're not trying to hurt somebody. Say you've been drinking and driving, you get behind the wheel and you could kill somebody, yourself, somebody else. It could be used as a weapon. Ask anybody with harm OCD, hit and run OCD, and they're terrified at the thought that they might accidentally use this Vehicle is a weapon. And so does that mean most people go and they drive into people and they're using it for an ill purpose? No. And does it mean sometimes that accidentally can happen? Certainly. We have accidents with everything. You don't even need to be in a vehicle to have an accident, right? But is its main function and purpose is that and useful? Does it have utility? And would we want to deny somebody a car because it could be dangerous? No, but you have to provide and acknowledge that all of those aspects of a car exist. Now, when I'm watching a commercial, if I happen to see a commercial, I haven't had like cable in eons, but (laughs) If you see like a Toyota commercial or something, Toyota's like, don't drag me into this. Toyota is not going to be like, here are all the ways this could go wrong for you because they want you to use it, it, right? For therapists, they're generally not going to be going out there and be like, hey, come get therapy with me that might not work and be dangerous. Yeah, I get that's probably not going to be the spiel. But at the same time, when you're going through an initial evaluation, when you're signing up, when you're doing intake paperwork, it is our duty to provide pros and cons and limits of the function of this treatment, even limits of our confidentiality legally, at least here in the States of everything will be confidential. But if you're at risk for hurting yourself, suicidal, homicidal, we have a duty to warn here in the U.S. If somebody is in danger and we find out about that, there are just certain things that we have to do as well. So we provide that. But is it emphasized as, OK, so welcome to therapy. So here's where I might have to <laughs> preach confidentiality all the time. And then that's just what we're going to focus on. Maybe we'll sprinkle a little something about why you're here. But I just want to tell you how the basis <laughs> could go wrong. Like, no, but it is part of our job to acknowledge that. And so, yes, that yes is really important and the and is important because both apply. And I think sometimes when people are like, this is harmful, and they're like, you're full of crap. I can't believe you're saying that over there. Well, yeah, you're not being listened to. Why would you go and try that? Why would you? You're not being heard at all. And it's not like you're just coming up with these ideas out of nowhere. You know, we talk a lot in ICBT about the logic that made this such an absorbing thought is such an absorbing story, right? But that logic is why you're also feeling concerned. Some people, people like me, haven't had good experiences in this. We're not trusting that. So we need to work on building that trust. And that's really important and key.
2: So if you're listening to this, if you train a therapist, bring these conversations into that training. I think I talked about non in an ethics class. I don't think I ever talked about it in a CBT class and behavior therapy class. I did the IOCDA Behavior Training Therapy Institute. I don't think we talked about harms that come out of this. We talked about pitfalls when it doesn't work because you didn't go far enough or you didn't conceptualize the core fear well enough, or maybe you did exposure that wasn't working and that that's harmful to people to do exposure that's not working. Mm -hmm. But it wasn't talked about in a sense of Misconceptualizing people, maybe the exposure isn't the tool that they're looking for in this. And then at the conference this past year in Denver, I think this was the first time I heard, well, this is how ERP can be damaging to people. When it talked about sexual orientation exposures Mm -hmm. uh, being potentially demeaning or further creating negative identities and internalized homophobia, Uh, I, I loved that presentation. I hope we hear more and more about the ethical considerations of providing behavioral therapies or cognitive therapies baked into the train.
0: Well, and Dr. Pinciotti, so she was on my uh, show. Yeah, she was on the panel for that, and she she came on the show. We talked about that and a number of other intersectionalities. This certainly is also an intersectionality, and as I said at the time, like I'm doing a series on intersectionality, but this isn't like I'll highlight it in a series and we'll just move on. No, this is an ongoing conversation that we get to have. And they received such good feedback. And it was really important because even when I was researching that topic, there was not a lot of conversation on justice-based treatment in that sense of how are we doing more harm than good when we are using people as props for the purpose of an exposure that is probably not even addressing what we need to be addressing here. And there are so many other ways to address it. So it is an important conversation to be able to have. And I think it helps build credibility and trust then within the broader community to go, Hey, it hasn't always been right, but that doesn't mean it's always wrong. Like we can see the pros and the cons and actually have a conversation. The only way we really make movement is to be able to talk with each other And whether we change our point of view or not, at least try to see it from the other person's perspective, right? And work on some of that compromise. Because again, let me tell you, if my my husband will tell you, if I was not budging and I am a stubborn person, I am. So I sometimes have a difficult time. He's going to listen to this and be like, yes, (laughs) sometimes have a hard time budging from certain positions, but it would not work. Our relationship would not work if I never moved. And, and some may say that could even, that's ripe for a condition where it can become an abusive relationship. If one person is controlling all the aspects of the relationship and you are just tough cookies person, you need to get in line. So people have experienced therapy that way and it's important. People have experienced relationship that way. And so it's important to understand that. Well, thank you so much for coming back in.
2: Thanks. Cole. Well, this is a fun conversation. Yeah. Catch you later.
0: Thank you for that. Okay, family. I have a feeling that if time wasn't a factor, y'all, Jeremy and I could have talked for hours, hours about this, I'm sure. And as helpful as our conversation has been thus far, I have notes upon notes of more questions and more considerations when it comes to understanding our role, CBT's role, Disability versus ableism, the need for reciprocity when talking about flexibility. Now, often we say, this this person, they're being so rigid. They're not very flexible. I just had this conversation with my son's speech therapist the other day. My son was having a very hard time accepting that it was time to move on from one task to the next. And Sometimes the terminology inflexibility in routine or inflexibility in transitions can be used to describe this. But I said to the speech therapist, yes, he is working on flexibility, but also he is expressing agency. And it's emotional, where one person might go, Man, you're totally melting down about this. Another person goes, Oh, it's so important. I'm desperate to have a say, to have some industry, to have some choice here. But often when we're talking about inflexibility, we're talking about, hey, you over there, you're being pretty inflexible. How flexible are we being? Are we bending? Are we shifting? Are we compromising? Or are we expecting this person that we're saying neurologically has a more difficult time with flexing in this way and really just expecting them to flex? Well, we stand firm, inflexible. Why? Because this is the way it's done. This is the rule. I'm not saying rules are bad, y'all. But how often is the inflexibility seen as a them problem, not a you problem, a power struggle? I'm not going to say I never get caught up in a power struggle, y'all, but I'm fairly aware of it. And I try to help illuminate those power struggles. Because what's a power struggle really about when you look at it? It's that fight for agency. And agency often gets substituted with this less affirming word of control. You're trying to control the situation. But might our perspective shift even a little if we were able to see, ah, actually, this person has to be flexible all the time, and no one else is really bending to them, but they struggle with bending, and we are literally making it a job. Is that fair? Today, we also talked about identity and you know what identity seeking and understanding. I think there's a really important conversation, particularly that us professionals need to be aware of in the field of going, when is identity seeking and understanding a normal developmental process versus a pathological process? Now, you might be thinking, what, what is pathological uh, identity-seeking even? But you know what, y'all? OCD loves to screw with the idea of identity. So here's what I mean by that. From an ERP perspective, we might have an intrusive thought. And then the appraisal of that thought brings about a lot of anxiety and often the compulsions. Because what is wrong with me? Am I a monster? How could I think that? How could I visualize that? Did I do that? What does it mean about me that I could even conceptualize that? OCD is screwing with our sense of identity. And from an ICBD perspective, we think about that feared possible self or vulnerable self themes where inferential confusion tops the charts. But identity seeking isn't always pathological, and sometimes we need to go, oh, this might be actually just part of growing up, processing our world. In fact, I'd argue more so that it's natural than pathological in most cases. But what does identity mean for our autistic loved ones, who, by definition, in our Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders and our International Classification of Diseases, further supported by the World Health Organization, defining autistic folks as people with mental, behavioral, and neurodevelopmental disorders? Your identity is a disorder. I mean, let's just take a step back for a moment and ask, would you want to be defined that way? Would I want to be defined that that way? I mean, in OCD alone, you can go around social media and hear this. You are not your thoughts. Thoughts are just thoughts. This feared possible self, it's a fear, but it's not who you are. Time and again, we say, you are not your disease. You are not your disorder. How would it feel to be defined as a person that has mental, behavioral, and neurodevelopmental disorder for different ways of processing the world? So how we conceptualize treatment, CBT, and even recovery, that matters. Understanding the power differential, as Jeremy pointed out, in any given relationship, not just therapy, that matters. It matters in the therapy room, with your medical providers, with your teachers. With your colleagues, understanding the power differential that exists in the room matters. Because is it possible, y'all, that CBT could be purported as treatment when it's experienced as a microaggression? Is it possible? I know some people are going to get fluffed up. Microaggressions get people all in a tizzy, right? Because it's not the intention. But isn't that the thing about microaggressions, right? They aren't always intended. But that doesn't make the pain less relevant. So as we close, here in my intrusive thought segment of the show, which is my application portion of the show, here's my charge to you, fam. And I'm going to do this, too. I'm thinking back to that talk Jeremy was talking about from last year's OCD conference in Denver, the scientific plenary that Dr. Caitlin Pinciotti paneled on along with a great panel of colleagues. And... If you go back to my Treatment Intersectionality series, I talked with Dr. Pinciotti about that content as well. We talked about the importance of justice-based treatment, and I loved and still love the importance and value of framing treatment in that matter. And as Jeremy pointed out, it was a constructive review of how we were treating folks in our OCD family in ways that did more harm than good. And so while I was reflecting on our conversation with Jeremy today, a theme that kept bubbling up for me, really based on Jeremy's sharing and the verbiage that I think was really powerful that he used, was liberation-oriented treatment. And whether we're talking about autistic or allistic brothers and sisters, people have the right to choose what's right for them, right? Access is important. And justice says we all deserve access, yep. But just because we have access doesn't mean we have to choose it. And that's a hard one for a lot of people to wrap their mind around. This would be better for you. Please try it. This one is hard for me all because I I talked briefly about my dad earlier and he has a cane, a walker, a wheelchair, the whole nine yards. He has everything that you could have to help support walking and not falling. He even has one of these lift chairs. I don't know if you guys have seen these before, but it has this mechanical button that can actually help you get up and down out of the chair. It actually helps you stand up and also helps you gently be able to sit down with less risk of harm to yourself if you were to fall. Because, hey, if he was to fall and he has, oh, he's fallen, that could lead to some potentially Fatal consequences, particularly if he were to fall into something that could cause blunt force trauma or if he broke a hip or something. Those can be really devastating injuries and they don't have a good prognosis. And so, you know, it drives us nuts, us being his family, his kids, his wife, because the man is so resistant to using any of those supports. And to be fair, the reason it drives us nuts is it scares us. We look at his age, his health, all these risk factors, and we worry that one small little action, one seemingly small thing, like standing up out of a chair, which, I mean, think about how many times you get up and down during a day from a seated position. There could be grave outcomes, right? And yet he fights it, y'all, fights it. And so we can get real frustrated and he can get real frustrated because here's the thing, y'all. We have to respect a person's sense of agency, of industry, of dignity, of wanting to say and being able to choose without needing to argue, to judge nor jury, of why I am choosing to stand up because I want to. I want to stand up. How many times in a given day do we do that? Do we take for granted that we get to choose that? And how would we feel if we were told, no, use the chair, cost money. And you have a cane, you need to use it. You have a walker. Why aren't you using the walker? You need to get in your wheelchair because you can't do this. Y'all, he has some real legitimate risk factors. So, denying him access to these potentially life saving tools, that would be considered elder abuse if he did not have access. But what do we call it when we strip away his choice to choose? And yeah, he deserves access and he has it. And he deserves industry. And so do I. And so do you. And so do our autistic family. So let's try this one on for size. What are your thoughts on ABA, on CBT, terms like ASD? I want you to pull out your handout if you printed it out or go back to that list. Is it harmful? Could be. Is it helpful? Could be. Did any of your answers change? You've heard Jeremy's natural process here of, well, it has. And for me, too. There's a couple different areas here where I have to go, yeah. So try to take some time this week and reflect on why. Why it changed? Why it hasn't? And then come back and join us next week, fam, because we're going to discuss part three of this series on autism and OCD where we're gonna take a deeper dive into OCD treatment. We're also going to be talking about masking. We're gonna be talking about diagnoses for men, for women, some of these different phenotypes. Do they get missed or misdiagnosed even? Lots of really, really great topics. So join us back here at OCD Family Podcast and we'll see you next week. Thank you for joining me and our OCD Family community. If you enjoyed what you heard today, please like and subscribe to the OCD Family Podcast wherever you enjoy your podcasts. Did you find this content helpful? Please consider leaving a review. The more people that know they're not alone, the better. For more information regarding today's podcast, please visit OCDFamilyPodcast.com and remember to join the email list while you're there. It will provide you with the most up-to-date information, resources, and the demo on the family chatter. Oh yeah, nothing says family. Like thinking about where we falter when it comes to autistic culture. That's right. I went there. And you can too at OCDFamilyPodcast.com.